Thank you. It's like a microphone relay tonight. Um, I'm going to read from Mark, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, and it's on page 1022 of the Blue Bibles in front of you. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And I'm going to pray for Tom, who's going to speak to us tonight. And thank you, Jesus, that you have placed this message on Tom's heart, and he is eagerly awaiting to share it with us. May we be receptive to his words as he speaks to us about your word, and may you guide his heart and mind as he reveals more and more to us um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Beth. Well, welcome everybody to church. A big welcome to everyone who's watching online as well. Uh, I'm glad that we can celebrate Easter together. Um, just thank you also for, um, just for just for getting around and celebrating this day together as a community. It's really important for us to um, to remind ourselves of um, what Easter is and and the message behind it. And today, I really want to focus us in on what the very first experience of Easter was. And as we prepare to do that, I would love you guys to think about what Easter has looked like for you over the course of your lives. Has it looked like uh, a family trip, uh, going camping? Has it looked like um, getting around your extended family and seeing people you haven't seen in a while? Does it look like and it, attending a religious service? Does it look like um, a bit of a non-event and you don't really do much as a family? I'm not sure what it looks like for you, but while you meditate and just reflect on what Easter has been for you, uh, for me, I've grown up in a Christian family and that meant that I attended church uh, on Easter Sunday, and uh, our church decided to uh, do a big community outreach event where we would uh, put on a big Easter egg hunt for just anyone who would like to come along. And it was a really big deal, would have a big public service before that. And for me, I was involved in different segments of that event. And f- as I've done that for five, six years before I came to Melbourne, I realized that Easter was sort of something that just came and went. It was just something that flew past. It, it was a really big event for, um, for our church and for, us, for me, but I sort of didn't notice it. It sort of flew past. And today, I really want us to focus in on what the very first experience of Easter is and, and slow down, and you guys slow down with me and look at what um, the resurrection is all about. And Jesus is a very famous person, and like famous people who, who have had multiple people uh, biograph their lives... Um, different biographers will often take different angles of 
on their lives and present different things, emphasize different things. And it's the same thing with Jesus here with um, the resurrection account. The uh, Gospel of Mark, when he's, when he's writing this gospel, he highlights specific things. And I want to really draw out what his flavor is on the resurrection. All the, all the essentials are the same, but he has a particular emphasis, a particular flavor. And for, for Mark, that flavor is that Jesus' resurrection purchases hope, it purchases security, it purchases acceptance for people who are failures, for people who are fearful. And that's where we're going to go uh, tonight, and I really want to show how Mark emphasizes that. So we need to set the scene before we jump into uh, the text. Jesus has been walking around for about three years uh, around the modern-day Israel, and he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been blowing people's minds, doing all these incredible things. And along the way, uh, he starts accumulating all these followers. He's got the 12 key disciples, but he's also got these men and women who follow him wherever he goes and are listening to him and are, and are bought in on his mission. And along the way, he starts claiming to be this Messiah. And we'll touch back on this um, a little bit uh, later. But he starts claiming to be this Messiah, this, this long-awaited king who's going to bring Israel back to its former glory, so to speak. And so there's excitement. There's anticipation building around Jesus. And so after three years, he's approaching Jerusalem and, and he arrives to Jerusalem and people are greeting him going, Hosanna, the king's here. Like they're excited for this, for this uh, king to arrive and to do all the things that they're expecting him to do. And then all of a sudden, from the disciples' perspective, the, the wheels just fall off the bandwagon. All of a sudden, one of the disciples betrays him and then he's arrested and then he's falsely accused and then he's beaten and then he's unjustly condemned to death and then he's tortured, and then he's crucified and dies. And from the disciples' perspective, they're, they're shocked, they're confused, they're bewildered, they, they don't really know what's going on. And, and the 12 key disciples who are following Jesus, they run off and, they're, and they're, they're scared and they're confused. The women who are following Jesus have a little bit more um, faith and they keep on following Jesus. They witness his death, they witness his burial. And then, um, and then one of the closeted followers of Jesus, he boldly goes forward and asks for Jesus' body and buries him. And that's where we arrive at with this story here. Um, it's dark, it's somber, there's a lot of confusion and no one really knows what's going on. And so we arrive at Mark 16 and I'd love to just read along with you. So it reads like this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, um, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And when they were, and along the way, they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And so the women, they go buy some oils and they go buy some spices and they want to do what we would do today, um, which is likened to laying a wreath at um, at a tomb or putting some flowers on a grave. They want to go and do one final act of devotion to their dead leader and they want to um, put spices on his body. And you can tell that they're still pretty confused, still in a state of shock because they're just walking there expecting and hoping that someone's going to open up the tomb for them. And so they're, they're going along the way and asking who's going to open the tomb up. And then verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been raised back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
And so all of a sudden, they, they, they go around the corner and they, they see that the stone that was, that was sealing the tomb has been rolled aside. And, and you can imagine the curiosity that would uh, arise in them. And they go, oh, what's going on here? So they, they speed up and they walk into the tomb. And all of a sudden, they're met by this angelic being. And like every encounter in the Bible where humans encounter uh, the divine, they're just in a state of shock that they're, they're alarmed, as the Bible puts it. And they, just, and they sort of shut down a bit. And the angel's first words are this. Don't be alarmed. He calms them down. He, he says, relax. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And then the Bibles often add, some of the earlier manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. And if you're like me, you will just feel like the, pen, the text has sort of punched you in the face a bit because you're just like, what the heck just happened? The first thing is that the text is claiming, the angel's claiming that there's a dead man come back to life. And the second thing that's going on there is there is this very confusing and anticlimactic ending to Mark. What do we do with this? So the first thing, let's start with the ending. It's anticlimactic and it's confusing. And it's confusing because... Um, a few hundred years after Mark was written, some people have gone along and gone, oh, this can't be the way that Mark intended to end Mark, so we're going to add a little bit on. And so a lot of um, scholarship, a lot of research has gone into trying to understand what's going on here. And uh, James Edwards says this, it's virtually certain that the, the added bit is a later edition and not original, and not the original ending of the Gospel of Mark. So that leads us to the question, okay, so did Mark deliberately leave it like this, or is it unintentional? So that, that, that's the next logical question, right? And there's two schools of thought. One says, oh, he deliberately does it for deliberate effect. And he's trying to focus us in on specific things that have occurred just in the story before, right? The second school of thought is that um, it's unintentional. In fact, for some reason or another, um, it was left this way. So maybe because of wear and tear, they, the back page literally of Mark just got lost or Mark, during the early persecution uh, from the governing authorities on the Christians, he just died and couldn't finish the text. They, no one really knows. And, and for me personally, I think, for what it's worth, I think it's unintentional. I think Mark would have or intended to write an ending to Mark. I think uh, Mark starts with such bold, emphatic statements. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And throughout uh, Mark, he's got all these big statements. And all of a sudden, to end on, the women ran away. I don't think that's what he intended. So... Either way, because as Christians we believe the Bible is written uh, by God and also by humans, for some reason God has, as an author, has decided to preserve Mark in this way. So all of a sudden we've got to go back and look at the text a bit harder. The anticlimactic ending that we've got Mark in has forced us to look harder at the text. So the second thing that sort of punches us in the face, which, which we have to look at, is the claim that a dead man came back to life. Okay, so I, I know and I have been raised in the same culture that you guys have been raised in, and it's a naturalist culture. We, we live in a culture that supernatural things just do not make sense to us. All that is real is, that, is things that we can see, things that we can touch and feel. That, that is all that is real. And so I feel the weight of this claim that we're, we're claiming that a dead man came back to life. And so how do we make sense of this? Well, in brief, I just want to put and lay before you four um, 
largely unattested facts about the resurrection that people, non-Christian, Christian, Christian, uh, skeptic, advocates, all agree on. And I want to put them and lay them before you and, and suggest that the resurrection is actually the most plausible understanding and analysis of those four facts. So here they are. One, Jesus died by crucifixion. There are heaps of non-biblical sources that say that Jesus died. So that's an unattested fact. He died, he died by crucifixion too. The disciples genuinely believed that he rose from the dead. They were telling people while the witnesses were around that Jesus is alive. So people could have easily gone and spoke to the witnesses that Jesus is alive. And if it wasn't real, they would go, no, heck no, it wasn't. But they're saying this while all the witnesses are alive. And on top of that, 500 other people claim to see Jesus risen from the dead. So that's fact two. Fact three is that is the conversion of Paul and James. So Paul was previously called Saul. He was a terrorist attacking the, the, the church. And all of a sudden, he becomes a Christian. What's the go there? This radical conversion from attacking the church to becoming the key, one of the key leaders in the early church movement. Now, on top of that, Jesus' brother, a skeptic um, called James, becomes a Christian as well. He was raised with Jesus, and obviously you'd be a skeptic if you were Jesus' brother when he starts claiming to be God. And, and, he, and he starts becoming a Christian, and he believes, yeah, he genuinely did rise from the dead, and he genuinely is what he claimed to be. And the fourth fact is that the tomb's empty. No one ever found the body. Um, and how do we make sense of this empty tomb that, that most scholars believe is the truth, that there is an empty tomb? And if you need more historical evidence, I'm happy to give that to you, um, and I would love to speak to you about it after the service. But I think what's more important for us is to look at, now that is important, but we need to look at what the, his, what the resurrection actually means. So Paul, that guy who was converted, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, he says, if Christ has not been raised, so if the resurrection um, didn't occur, your faith is useless. You're still guilty of your sins and we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. So he's saying if the resurrection is not true, then Christianity just falls on its side. We, we are to be pitied. <laughs> that he, he, just, he just levels with us and just says the truth. So why is the resurrection important? Why is, why is it foundational to our belief? Well, the resurrection is important because it means that what Jesus was claiming to be, which was the Messiah, is true. Okay, well, what, what does this Messiah mean? So we've got, to, we've got to take a few steps back to understand what the Messiah means. So Jesus arrives at the start of Mark. He's going, the time has come. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe, uh, the, repent and believe in the good news. And halfway through Mark, uh, Peter is talking to Jesus. And Jesus asks him, who do you say I am? And Peter goes, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And, and so Jesus starts taking on this name of Messiah. And, and he goes on and, and continues using this name. So what is this Messiah? Well, the Jewish people and us, even though there's thousands of years in between us, have had the, a very similar experience of humanity that we have had. They, they live in a world that's broken. They live in a world that doesn't make sense a lot of the time. There's injustice. There's cancer. There's family breakdown. There's political division. There's wars. There's violence. There's suffering. There's mental illness. There's addictions. And that's just a small sample of the things that are wrong in our world. And the Jewish people recognize that, and God recognizes that, most importantly. And what God promised to the Jewish people um, is this. He said, I'm actually going, I've got a big plan to right the wrongs of this world. And my big plan is to bring an, a, a special anointed king who's going to bring a kingdom where those things just do not exist in his kingdom. And, 
so his, his big plan is to, in bringing Jesus as this anointed king and bringing his kingdom, he's going to bring justice, he's going to remove brokenness, and he's going to usher in this beautiful kingdom, things that we should all and we all do want in our world. So at, at the core, the Bible diagnoses the, the core problem of all the brokenness that we see in the world as broken relationship with God, and, and, and that's flowed into broken relationship with one another, and that's bro- flowed into broken relationship with the world that we literally live in. And, and the Bible diagnoses all those things that I've just identified, and you'll be able to identify in your own lives as stemming from that. And so this king is going to restore relationship between humanity and God. He's going to usher in a kingdom that is marked by contentment. It's marked by peace. It's marked by abundance. It's marked by joy, love, unity, health. All of these things, whether you're Christian or non-Christian here tonight, you should want this kingdom to be true. You should want this kingdom to come because those are the things that we long for as humans. We want all these, all, all broken things to be removed. We want justice to be brought for injustice. And we also want this good kingdom to come into existence. And the second thing that the resurrection is important for, so it, it, vindicates, it vindicates Jesus. And when, when God raised Jesus from the dead, God is giving his stamp of approval on Jesus and saying, yep, this guy's my Messiah. This guy's going to bring that kingdom. The, the unfortunate thing is, is if we can't enter that kingdom, then it's not really good news for us. <laughs> Let's just be frank. Like, if we can't enter that kingdom, it's not good news for us. And the resurrection means that we can enter that kingdom. We can have restored relationship with God. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, the passage I just read, when he says, you're still guilty of your sins if there's no resurrection. So if God wanted to bring justice, to remove brokenness, to usher in this kingdom, it'd be very easy if he could zip around the room and go, good, 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 bad, 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 good, good, bad, bad, good, 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 bad, bad, bad. Okay, bad people, you enter the kingdom, and good people, you enter the kingdom. That would be a cinch for God to do. But the reality is, and you will know this, and I know this in my experience, that good and bad splits the human heart much more nu- in a much more nuanced way than, uh, than that, than just having good people and bad people. The reality is, like, we are all victims, but also also abusers we're also oppressed and oppressors we're good and bad we're we're capable of amazing achievements and yet also capable of of the most atrocious things that can come to mind and so if god wants to bring this kingdom and the reality is we have contributed to the brokenness that that has left the world in this way it's not very good news if we can't enter it and so the resurrection means that Jesus willingly, as the king who should be respected and revered of this new kingdom, in the ultimate manifestation of how people in his kingdom live, he chose to die, to take the penalty for uh, our, our contribution to the brokenness in the world. He takes the penalty, which is death, and, and rises again so that he can offer that to us. And, and that is really good news because all of a sudden there's this kingdom coming and we want to be a part of that and all of a sudden we can enter that kingdom as well. That, that is really good news and the resurrection means that the kingdom's coming and that we can enter it. So that's, that's good. But you might be saying to me, Tom, like, how's this resurrection apply to me personally? And that's a great question because that's exactly where I'm going to go next. And, and, and this is where I want to highlight Mark's particular flavor, Mark's particular angle that he, he takes on the resurrection. If you want to look with me, like if you open up your Bibles, we can look at verse 7. And the angel says this to the women. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Okay, so who's this Peter guy? Peter is part of the 12 key disciples that were following Jesus around. On top of that, he's part of the three closest 
followers and disciples to Jesus. And of those three, he's probably the most vocal, most emphatic, most passionate follower of Jesus that you can find. He, he's, he's all about it. He's, he's, he's energized by Jesus. And then all of a sudden, when, when, from his perspective, the bandwagon just falls apart, he, he runs away. He flees. When, when Jesus is captured, he runs away. When he's asked, do you even know Jesus? He completely denies it. And honestly, right now in the story, like, like prior to the resurrection, he's probably blaming himself for Jesus' death. He's been an absolute coward. He's been a failure of a disciple. And, he, and he's blaming himself for Jesus' death. I should have just done that thing in that situation if I only just said that. And, and this, is, this is where the good news particularly applies. This is where the rubber hits the road for the resurrection. Maybe you feel like Peter. And you feel like you've failed Jesus as well. And I'm sure if we took a moment to reflect on our lives in the last day, in the last week, in the last few months, there would be moments that we go, oh, I let Jesus down in that area. I failed Jesus in that area. And the beauty of the resurrection is that Jesus can offer what to Peter what he offers to us. He goes to Peter and he says, meet me in Galilee. Just, just meet me in Galilee. He doesn't say, man, you are trash and you are rubbish and you're a failure disciple. I don't want you to be a part of my kingdom. He just says, come, Peter. Come be a part of the kingdom that I'm bringing in manifestation. Come follow me. And that's the thing that he says to us as Christians today. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the very vehicle that Jesus uses to purchase our security and acceptance as followers. And he gives us this opportunity to step into new life because Instead of beating ourselves up, oh man, like Peter, I'm such a failure, I'm such a coward, I didn't do the right thing in this situation. All of a sudden, we can have new life because we can sit secure in, in the acceptance that Jesus purchased in his death and resurrection. We can sit secure, we can relax into that truth. And because the king has paid for our relationship with God, he's paid for our entrance into his kingdom, he's, he's paid for the acceptance to be his children, it means that we don't have to and we can taste the sweetness of the gospel. We can, we can sit down and just enjoy, I'm accepted by God. I'm, I, I am going to enter that future kingdom. I am, am a child of God. And this is really good news for us. So by way of application, as we, as we close, I just want to ask you questions. <laughs> if you're a follower of Jesus, are there areas of your life that... Uh, you have failed Jesus. The Holy Spirit will bring those things to mind. Are there areas where you feel like you've failed Jesus? And I want to encourage you, are you hearing the invitation that Jesus extended to Peter? Are you hearing that same, that same invitation that he's extending to you? Come with me. Come up to Galilee. Come with me. Just follow me. I've paid for your mess. I've paid for your failure. Just come follow me. Are you, are you actually letting that filter its way down from your head to your heart. Because if you're a Christian, you would have heard that message many, many times, many times. But the reality is, and I, and I have the same experience as well, I often don't let that acceptance actually filter its way down from my head to my heart on the, on the, the issues that I'm really struggling with, on, on the failures that are most potent in my life. I don't, I don't, I, there's a disconnect there between what I know in my head and what I know in my heart. And so I want to challenge you. Are you actually, are you actually hearing that invitation? Because you have to hear it. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, what other God can give you this security? Like seriously, what other God can give you this same acceptance? How can you pass up a God like Jesus? Money can't give you um, security. 
because you can so easily lose. If you build your life on that, if you're going to be a disciple to money, it's going to let you down because it's because it can disappear. Stock market can crash, bang, all your money is gone. There can be some unexpected event that's going to take up all your money. It's not a secure place to be, a secure thing to follow, to be a disciple of, to be a follower of. Career can't give you that security because if you make one bad move, if you ruin your reputation, if you mess up that project, it's not going to forgive you. It's not going to die and rise so that you can have life in career. No way. You've just got to pull yourself up and get going. It's not a secure place. It's not a, a secure God to follow. What if, what if and, and, and many Christians will fall into this basket, what if being a good person, a good moral person, is what you're looking for to find security? And the reality is you're never going to meet the standards that you set for yourself, let alone God's standards. And so being a good person, being a good, nice, moral person can't be the God that you're following because it won't give you security. It won't give you acceptance. And this goes on for heaps of other things, family, for education, for relationships, for reputation, for sex. You can apply this same metric across every other thing that we often follow and everything else that we make our gods for our lives. And so... This is where Mark's flavor is so, so important for us and important for us to hear that these disciples are failures. The ones in the story, the women run away, the 12 disciples run away, they, they don't do what Jesus wants them to do. And yet, and, and that's the same for our life, and, and we have to listen to this, and yet, and yet, Jesus responds with this compassionate invitation because his death and his resurrection has, has purchased that ability to hold his people secure, to, to accept them in whatever form they come to him in, so that, so that they can keep following Jesus now, experience the life, experience the, the goodness of following Jesus now, but also look forward, actually look, look forward and want that kingdom to come because they're going to participate in it and they'll be able to be a part of it. And that is such good news because he is risen and the resurrection means that those things are a reality for us. So if you want to bow your heads and pray with me, that would be great. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that you have put your stamp of approval on Jesus and that he is our Messiah, that he is our King, and that not only is he those things, but we also can enter that kingdom. We can start following you in our mess and in our muck and in our failures and in our fear. We can follow you because the resurrection has purchased the ability for you to accept us and to keep us secure in your love and in your mercy. Lord, we thank you so much for these things. And I pray that as we sing this next song, that we would let this truth filter through us as we sing and filter through us in the coming week and coming months as well. But we thank you so much for this resurrection and how it is the centerpiece, the foundation for the gospel. Amen.